Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Gervis Grigg, Global Public Sector Chief Technology Officer for the blockchain forensics company Chainalysis, and a 23-year veteran of the FBI whose last position there was as Assistant Director and Head of the FBI Crime Lab. Gervis and I talk about how cryptocurrency is increasingly being used to move the proceeds of fraud, ransomware, and other crimes, and how Chainalysis and other companies are able to track it and sometimes even help law enforcement seize it. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. This podcast is sponsored by Nice Actimize. Need a new podcast for your queue? Check out Nice Actimize's Let's Talk FinCrime, the show where we cover the human side of financial crime, not just the latest trends and topics, but how financial crime impacts us all every day. Listen and subscribe to Let's Talk FinCrime on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes are added regularly. Don't miss out. Well, it is a real pleasure today to have Gervis Grigg with me, who is at Chainalysis. He's the global public sector chief technology for Chainalysis. And he comes to that role after more than 23 years with the FBI, including three years as assistant director and director of the FBI Crime Lab. Pretty impressive credentials, Gervis. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. I'm glad to join you. It is safe to say that Chainalysis, others too, but Chainalysis particularly, have been a lot in the news. It has to do with uh, ransomware, being able to trace cryptocurrency. Just for those out there that don't know, what does Chainalysis do? How does the company break down in terms of where the focus is and the resources go, that kind of thing? Chainalysis is a blockchain data platform. We provide data and software services research to government agencies, exchanges, financial institutions, insurance companies, and cybersecurity companies all over the world in about 60 countries. Our data platform of the blockchain helps uh, these agencies and entities sort of power their investigations, work compliance matters, and provide risk management tools to help them evaluate the cryptocurrency blockchain and solve some of the world's highest profile cyber criminal cases. We divide our work up between public sector and private sector customers. So as I said, you've been in the news a lot. How do you explain to people, I mean, we're going to have people listen into this that are crypto nerds, uh, blockchain nerds, perhaps, who may really get it. And I guess I'm asking this question for those who may have some knowledge or have little knowledge. How do you trace these transactions, for instance, the ones that we've been reading about that involve ransomware. Uh, you know, I know they can involve Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, is there a way to walk us through that? Sure. So how do we track and trace assets on the blockchain? I think it's important to begin first with an understanding that the blockchain is really a public immutable ledger of transactions between parties who are transferring value. You know, one of the most common misconceptions of cryptocurrency is that it's totally anonymous and untraceable, when in fact, that's quite the opposite. The challenge, of course, is because it is publicly available, it's difficult, though, to interpret. It just looks like a bunch of random letters and numbers that are transferring value between one set of random letters and numbers to another set of random letters and numbers. And so where Chainalysis comes in is that we help people interpret those public blockchain ledgers, and our tools help these 
government agencies and private industry uh, entities that we talked about understand which real world services those transactions tie back to. And that's really the key. And from that, then they have context for the transaction. And from there, they can evaluate risk or conduct an investigation. That means all those things like Bitcoin and Ethereum that are in a public ledger, there is a way to see that. And what you're telling me is that the value added that you bring is that you can interpret that and I might see the transactions, but not be able to do too much with them. But what about a lot of illicit funds? And I know that's what we're all about at ACAMS and at Chainalysis is illicit funds. Tell me a little bit about what is the state of privacy coins and what are the challenges around that? Is that money that we just can't follow if it's using privacy coins? Sure. Let me break that apart. So you have uh, non-privacy coins and privacy coins. When an individual transfers value uh, using an exchange or some other method between one token to another, they leave a record on this public blockchain. However, these privacy coins offer a level of obfuscation, making it more difficult to see those transactions and or the amounts and or who has participated. I won't discuss what our capabilities are necessarily with regard to privacy coins. It is becoming increasingly difficult for actors to be able to move value regardless of the token they choose because of the mapping and understanding that's being gained globally about the blockchain. But these privacy coins, as you mentioned, are efforts by individuals to try to obfuscate or to cloud and make less transparent their participation and transfer of value between parties. I guess you're saying because there is public ledgers out there that are part of many of the coins, even if these things disappear, they may come back into the system and you trace them. I mean, I'm saying there's also peer-to-peer networks out there and what kind of problems they create. That's right. I like to use an example that people can imagine. So let's imagine that you're sitting up on top of a building and you're watching a large crowd below and you've got a particular individual that you're really interested in wearing a red baseball cap and a blue backpack and they enter the crowd. Now, visually, you're trying to keep up with and watching them as they co-mingle with all of these other people walking back and forth. But now imagine once they enter the crowd, they start changing their clothes and switching from a red hat to a green hat or taking it off altogether. And then that hat gets put on someone else and then they move in a different direction. And so visually it becomes very difficult to follow that. And that's what some of these illicit actors attempt to do when they use mixing services or tumblers. They're trying to obfuscate the path that they're following. And it takes a really astute investigator powered by a good understanding of the data to be able to keep up with how they're attempting to evade detection and their path as they move through the blockchain ecosystem. So, I mean, that's fascinating and it's a great image. And I guess what you're saying, it's difficult, but it is sort of possible if you keep your eye on the movement. Speaking of keeping eye on the movement, I think, you know, obviously the ACAMS audience is many things. Uh, We've increasingly had crypto exchanges that are involved in because of their concern about uh, money laundering. But a lot of the audience out there is still mainline financial institutions. And that raises the question a little bit What kind of things can you say to them about how they can trace illicit cryptocurrencies? Where do the cryptocurrencies that may be involved in ransomware or other kinds of crimes come into the financial system that might present red flags for them? Well, people use cryptocurrencies for the very same reason that legitimate users or illicit actors use cryptocurrencies for the very same reason that legitimate actors use it, because it's borderless, it's instantaneous, and it's liquid. And it is difficult, though, to launder and cash out illicit cryptocurrency because of the transparency of the blockchain. What I would say to groups like that is with the right tools, what you can do is then follow that money. 
you know, criminals are making these permanent records on these transactions. And even if they don't get caught today, the evidence exists forever. So, you know, I can say from my experience in law enforcement, I would much rather follow the money on the blockchain than try to follow it through cash or some of the other traditional value transfer methods. So your members and groups who spend a lot of time tracing illicit assets and trying to uncover where money has been moved to, powered with the right data and an understanding of the blockchain, they have potentially a leg up in following these proceeds and figuring out where they meant and how they were moved. So that's interesting in terms of uh, the traditional financial institutions. We hear often of how some of the crypto exchanges have helped to crack a case or to point out illicit behavior, but there's a feeling that many of them aren't doing enough and some are better at it than others, I guess. Uh, do you have any sense of you know, what the role should be of the crypto exchanges? What can they do that would be more than what they're doing now? That's a good point. Cryptocurrency exchanges play a vital role in maintaining the health and wellness of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. You know, as regulations get rolled out in various jurisdictions around the world, we are seeing cryptocurrency exchanges embrace those and put into place compliance mechanisms and best practices, particularly real-time transaction monitoring. In addition to the traditional know your customer and understand who it is they're doing business with and opening up and hosting accounts for, it's really important to monitor those transactions to be able to detect if one of their customers begins doing business with an illicit provider or moving money to wallets or locations that have been known associated with illicit activity. For example, doing business with a darknet market vendor or an entity that's been associated with the exploitation of child material, things like that, or doing business with a sanctioned individual or entity. So what can cryptocurrency exchanges do? Well, they can make the investment in those compliance tools to both know their customer and know their transactions. And we are seeing services around the world beginning to do that, not only because it's the right thing to do and it's the law, but it's also good business. I mean, the companies that make an investment in good compliance regimes have a competitive advantage because consumers, as we see, that are coming into this market with ever-increasing billions, now trillions of dollars, they're looking for services they can trust. Exchanges who will make that investment in these compliance tools will gain a greater market share of trusted customers. So, you know, as we talk about tracing crypto assets, I came across you and, and, and some companies like Chain Analysis are really in the news now. This notion of fingerprints, I guess, that are left in terms of cryptocurrency that particularly is involved in illicit transactions. Talk to me a little bit about that. I, I note that you recently identified this new group, Black Matter, and sort of traced it back to yet another group. What are the kinds of signatures? How does that work? What, what would I see that would suggest this is a revived former illicit actor out there? Sure. Well, while I won't divulge all of the capabilities or techniques that we do with that, but there are some things I can say. So let's talk about that. Let's make the analogy back to regular investigations. Imagine if you were working against a organized crime group and you engaged in investigation, you arrested a certain key number of players, you identified who those actors were, and you disrupted and dismantled the organization. And some of the actors scattered. Well, you know, they're going to reform and try to start their crime and frauds again. And so when you see them reemerge, you see patterns and similarities. You may even see previously identified actors reemerge and you then begin to see them networking with other previous co-conspirators. And so all of those things begin to lead investigators to say, hey, wait a minute, 
we've seen these actors before, or we've seen these methodologies in these practices before, or we recognize these wallets or these transaction associations. And so that all then begins to add to the intelligence that investigators are putting together to say, wait a minute, this looks like a reformed subgroup of similar actors we've seen before. They're acting in ways similar. They're transacting in ways that we've seen before. And they're doing business with people we saw them used to do business with. And, and so all of those things contribute to the intelligence assessment of, wait a minute, this is a reformed group of similar actors doing the same show again. Those are the kinds of things that happen. And we do that by putting together blockchain analytics by following these transactions, following the money, looking at who these actors are, where they're coming from, and what signatures they're leaving behind. Well, it is interesting. And I think the case we're talking about was the Colonial Pipeline case where uh, you identified Dark Side and then Black Matters as being a connected group, even though Dark Side said they were out of business. Uh, they may not entirely be out of business or not everybody, I guess. And sometimes they make it easy for us because they just come forward and say things. Yeah. Sometimes uh, the very best evidence is the evidence the suspect gives you. A lot of these high profile cases have clearly involved ransomware. Well, that's not even, I guess, the bulk uh, based on these amazing chain analysis does just really great reports on the flow of illicit funds and everything um, through blockchain systems. That basis, I, I know from what you've told me, from what chain analysis has told me, ransomware, which that case involved with Colonial Pipeline, um, is not necessarily even the biggest issue out there. What kind of financial crime are you seeing that's using cryptocurrency that you're tracing that are real concerns out there in addition to ransomware? Fraud and scams still remain the king. Frauds and scams make up the largest block of illicit crimes committed involving cryptocurrencies. Now, it is true, as you mentioned, ransomware is the fastest growing new and emerging category of illicit utilization of cryptocurrencies. But frauds and scams continue to make up the bulk of illicit activity. And that's where the money is. The amount of victims that can be exploited is large. You know, ransomware campaign is not as sophisticated and hard as it used to be, which is probably part of the reason why we see it emerging as the fastest growing new category. But frauds and scams make up the bulk of the illicit crypto use. And who are the cyber hackers out there who do ransomware? Who are those really sophisticated actors? And, and then there's this whole phenomenon of, you know, selling services for less sophisticated cyber criminals to act. But who's out there doing this? Am I right in thinking there's this growing threat too from people that are buying off the shelf crimeware kind of stuff? You're absolutely right. So crime as a service, now ransomware as a service. In the old days, you had to be a more sophisticated cyber actor to get into the ransomware and cyber attack business. Nowadays, you can literally go out onto the dark web and rent those tools from administrators. You then promise to give them a cut of what you exploit or steal, and you're off in business. You make an arrangement with a bulletproof web hoster who will help you with an illicit cloud provider that'll let you park your stolen data at, and you make deals with individuals who will help you or promise to help you obfuscate and launder your proceeds, and you're off to the races. And now you're out there uh, running these scams and running these ransomware attacks. And then what you've got to do is pay the network for their services. Typically, administrators get to keep about 20% of that and 80% goes to the scammer or ransomware attacker. The fascinating thing about that is how are they paying these other members of the criminal networks? They're paying them through cryptocurrency. 
And so that offers a real advantage to investigators to be able to literally follow the money. Additionally, if properly utilized, you can then begin to see a campaign building prior to launch as people are getting in place these services. That's where we see great opportunities for investigators and institutions to proactively and preventatively identify emerging threats and campaigns, perhaps even before they launch or as they begin to launch. Let me just, in asking too about who the cyber hackers are, I think there's a stereotype, there's a lot of hacking coming out of uh, Eastern Europe, former Soviet republics, China. There's obviously a lot of hackers in the U.S. Are there some profiles for who the cyber criminals are, the cyber hackers are out there now? There's a lot of intelligence growing about who these actors are and the networks that they support. It is true that most of those behind some of the biggest ransomware strains operate in these jurisdictions like Russia and Iran, where they are unlikely, at least currently, to face the consequences of their actions, even if they're identified. And sadly, of course, one successful attack then helps fund the cycle of exploitation, and it repeats with an increasing velocity and, and volume. However, one of the interesting things that we have noticed is, you know, last year we thought was the year of ransomware. However, attackers show no sign of slowing down in 2021. And in fact, as of uh, June of this past, June, July of this past year, we were well over 210 million in identified ransomware payments. And the end of the year promises to be probably eclipsing last year. But what is fascinating about that is that in our study from last year, we found that nearly 80% of all the funds that we could trace regarding ransomware ended up in just five services for cashing out. And almost half of that activity was only going to 25 deposit addresses. That's remarkable when you think of a global threat like ransomware, that 80% of it ended into five services and that nearly almost half of it went to just 25 deposit addresses. That portells a network of like-minded actors collaborating and cooperating together as part of an ecosystem and service. As a result, that means those are opportunities for disruption by authorities who can then attack that network and make real dismantlement impact. Seeing your ability to chart that's very reassuring. And I think, as you said, we see where the biggest kinds of attacks and crime are, including fraud and scams. And But let me ask you, I, I think we're so aware now, uh, and this will be a theme certainly in the Las Vegas conference that's coming up, about the return of the Taliban to Afghanistan. And so terror issues are out there too. I know this isn't the biggest use of crypto, but there is some use by terrorist organizations uh, for funding purposes. So what can you tell me about that and how we track that? So there have been documented instances, and we have written about it in the past, of terrorist groups both using cryptocurrencies as a way to crowdsource and fund their activities, right, uh, to solicit donations, as well as then utilize and move those funds seamlessly across borders. They no longer have to worry about trying to smuggle cash across a border or utilize traditional fiat methods for wire transfers that they feel like maybe will get detected or prevented. And so now the emergence of the liquidity, borderless and instantaneous nature of cryptocurrency is appealing to these groups for all the same reasons that legitimate individuals want to use cryptocurrency. It is definitely a concern. It's something the authorities are aware of. And to make matters worse, oftentimes many of these locations around the world where terrorism threat is emerging are also those places where we have large amounts of the population who remain unbanked 
or unstable or unregulated financial systems. And so it sort of becomes this perfect combination of a large unregulated banking environment together with individuals who are willing to utilize the blockchain for illicit purposes. So it makes the threat of cyber crypto terrorism a real concern. We're just about out of time. And uh, my concluding question is going to be about, I think it's a truism that the criminals are always a step ahead in this world. And you may, you may feel differently or you may agree that they can be. So it kind of leads to what are the things that concern you when you look five years ahead? Perhaps even what are the things that we can do to address some of those concerns now? Well, I definitely believe we're at an inflection point and that these threat actors are continuing to adopt this technology in an aggressive and powerful way. And we haven't even spoken about in today's discussion about how nation state actors are utilizing the blockchain for their own purposes. We could get into that in a whole other time. We focus mostly on criminals. We should do that as another topic because it really is the whole attack on infrastructure and everything. And so to our audience out there, yes, we aren't going to get to that today, but that's a great follow-up. Many of the same methodologies are being utilized by these criminals. They are early adopters of technology. They always have been. They don't have the same constraints that a government or regulatory body or even a financial institution has. That means they quickly adopt these new technologies and they're utilizing them for their good. You cannot have trillions of dollars move into a new market space, into a new asset class and not attract illicit actors. So where do we see ourselves five years down the road? Well, it depends on what we do in the coming days, weeks and months now. That is uh, adopting and raising the level of our crypto literacy. That crypto literacy has got to happen in these agencies and uh, regulatory entities as well as financial institutions. We've got to raise our game. Just like as the cyber threats emerged back in the day, we have to raise our cryptocurrency literacy. Two, we've got to empower these investigators and analysts with the right kind of data and tools so that they can follow this money and not let these illicit actors evade detection. And three, there are additional regulatory and compliance steps that when properly implemented, we believe will help drive and make it more difficult for these actors to operate with impunity in these market spaces. So through education, through data and tools and better and, uh, regulations, we have a chance of getting ahead of this threat and perhaps driving many of these uh, out of the marketplace. Well, as they say, amen. Thank you so much, Gervis. Uh, what a pleasure to talk to you. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Best wishes. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Gervis Grigg of Chain Analysis. I hope that you found what you heard compelling and that you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll be able to receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.